0: I used to preach. I've forgotten what it is I do. So I, uh, I'll i try to get started here. Let's turn to the ninth chapter of Mark. I was so delighted when I heard that Chris and Brian were going to teach through the Gospel of Mark, because I uh, I just love the Gospels. Because it's in the Gospels and in the life of Jesus that we see so clearly the character of God. It's Jesus that makes God real and believable and uh, trustworthy, understandable. I think a lot of us have really what amount to heathenish, pagan ideas about God. But when you see the person of Jesus, you see who God really is. His character becomes manifest so clearly. And... uh, The older I get and the more I study the scriptures and the more I think about life, the more convinced I am that really the purpose for which we're here on earth is to understand God. And if we don't understand God, it doesn't make any difference what else we do. We, We may accomplish a great deal in terms of gaining power and acquiring possessions and amassing an estate, but if we don't understand God, then our lives are a failure. We really haven't accomplished anything at all. And the one who makes Jesus, the one who makes God understandable, is our Lord Jesus. It's in the face of Jesus that we see the character of God. Uh, one of my detractors, who occasionally writes uh, a statesman, has been hounding me the whole time I was gone. I wasn't even aware of these letters, but this person was real concerned, really concerned, because I've never told people what I believe about God. And actually, I thought for the last ten years that I've been writing in the paper, that's what i had been talking about. But I thought, while when I read the last letter that was sent, that this is something that I need to do. And what I want to do is, is just encourage this person and others to simply look into the face of Jesus. That's how you know who God is. So it makes God so believable when you see him in Christ. It's certainly true in the Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, that you see the, the heart of, of God. Now, as Chris and Brian told you, the burden of the early portion of Jesus' ministry was to establish that, that he was the Son of God. He was the promised, long-awaited Messiah, the one who would come to set everything right in the world and, and once for all deal with that deep-down, all-pervasive dissatisfaction that we have with ourselves. And uh, that fact, the fact that he is the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh, that he was Emmanuel, God with us, was the primary concern of his ministry in in, in the opening years. And uh, as Chris pointed out to you last week, it's in chapter 8, that all of this coalesces. When he asks this question of his disciples, gathers the disciples, he says to them, who do people say that I am? Note the question. He doesn't ask who do people or what do people say that I have done or what do people say that I have said? The question is who am I? Who do people say that I am? And uh, the disciples say, well some, th- some think you're Elijah, some think you're Isaiah, some think you're John the Baptist uh, reincarnated. That's what they're saying. Jesus then refocuses the question on the disciples, and he says, Who do you, a plural pronoun, you, disciples, say that I am Peter, speaking for the disciples, said you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the one and only Son of God, unique. It's no one like Jesus. It's not like Elijah, it's not like Isaiah, not like any of the other prophets. Doesn't belong in any long list of heroes, doesn't even belong in a short list. It's no one like Jesus. He stands alone, it's unique among all of his peers. That means that Jesus was not a good man. He was the best. A bit later, uh, when Jesus is engaged in a conversation with the uh, rich young ruler, the uh, young man comes to him and he says, Good teacher, and Jesus interrupts him. He says, Whoa, wait, wait, wait. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, he's not denying his deity. He's challenging this young man's concept of goodness because we tend to relativize that term. We talk about good old boys, and we know good and well that they're not good in many aspects of their life. But Jesus is thinking in absolute terms. If you call me good, you understand what you're saying. He's good. He's absolutely good. There's no shadow of turning with him. There's no darkness in him. There's no one like him. He isn't good. He's the best. He isn't a kind man. He's the kindest. He isn't an interesting companion. He's the most interesting companion of all. He isn't a human being. He's the most human person who ever walked the face of the earth. Even though he was God, he was still utterly utterly human. he's, He's in class by himself. He's the one and only Son of God. That's why it's so important that we center around him. It's so important that we look at Him. It's so important that we listen to Him. Now, our Lord chose a very graphic way to drive this lesson home. It was very important to Him that the disciples grasped this concept. And uh, so He uh, he did something spectacular. Uh, Let's begin reading with chapter 9, verse 1. He said to the disciples, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see they see the kingdom of God come with power. And normally it's through death that we see the kingdom of God come with power. Here's something extraordinary. Jesus said that some standing in front of him will see the kingdom of God coming in power. in six days later, they saw a, a, a sort of sneak preview of of the kingdom coming. They saw the king manifest in his glory. That's what the transfiguration is all about. Some critics of the Bible say here Jesus misspoke himself. He thought he was a prophet. He uh, predicted that the kingdom would come before these disciples died. It didn't come. They didn't read on into the next verse because the very next verse tells us that after six days, they did see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, three lodging places, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, Some of you who are standing here will be alive when you see the kingdom of God coming with power. And then he left that, that promise reverberating in their minds for six days. They were all thinking, What in the world? Is Jesus talking about it. And then one day, just out of a clear blue sky, Jesus said to three of his apostles, Let's go climb Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Tabor is the traditional location of the Transfiguration. If you ever go to Israel, the guides will point out Mount Tabor. It's up in the plains of Esdraelon, just a little hill, a couple or three hundred feet higher than the surrounding terrain. There have been several churches built up there because traditionally that's the site of the Transfiguration. But for myself, I don't think it was Tabor. I don't believe it could have been Tabor. I think it was Mount Hermon. Because Mount Tabor is in the southern part of Galilee and Jesus and the disciples were way up in the north in the part of Israel that today is called Metula up near Caesarea Philippi and much closer to Mount Hermon. Secondly, Tabor is not a high mountain. It's just really a very small mountain. Less than 1,000 feet high. Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet high. And thirdly, just recently they discovered excavations, actually doing excavations on the churches there, they, they discovered the foundations of a Roman fortress that stood on Mount Tabor when, during Jesus' stay. So it's highly unlikely it was Tabor. It must have been Hermon. Hermon would be a tremendous challenge to climb. If you ever fly into, into Lebanon, you look off to the Lebanese uh, range up to the north, you'll see... Mount Hermon, reaching uh, up 9,000 or more feet in the sky, snow-capped, beautiful, beautiful mountain. Jesus and the disciples were young men, late 20s, early 30s, they were still vigorous, they liked to climb mountains. I just like to look at them now, but Jesus said to the disciples, let's go climb the mountain. It strikes me again, this is another one of... Jesus' teaching devices. He spent very little time in formal classrooms. Most of his teaching took place walking along the seashore, walking through fields and streams, sitting and eating together, chatting about life. Very rarely did he teach in a formal setting. And here, he, because he had something he needed to teach, he invited the disciples to join them in this challenge, the ascent of Mount Hermon you ask, why these three? Why James, Peter, and John? Why not the rest of the disciples? But it wasn't because these three were were Jesus' favorites. They weren't teacher's pets. Jesus has no favorites. He has many intimates. But no favorites. He doesn't play favorites. It's because these three love the truth. It's all that's necessary. To know the truth is to have a heart to know it. It's what Proverbs tells us. You want wisdom? You have to go get wisdom. You want to know the truth, then you enlighten the truth through, through obedience to it. It doesn't take a theological degree, it doesn't take a lot of sophistication, doesn't even take a high IQ. It's just a matter of exposing your heart to the truth, being willing to respond to what Jesus tells you. Uh, this, uh, on this trip, we spent a bit of time in Arkansas, and there are a number of questions. Uh, People engaged in the cottage industries in Arkansas, making quilts and whatnot. And we encountered this wonderful little lady. She's probably in her 90s, didn't have a tooth in her head, murdered to King's English. Obviously, uh, uh, prob- well, I should say obviously, probably had to drop out of school at a very early age. She's still making quilts in her 90s. And uh, most wonderful, uh, uh, engaging personality I think I've run across the- a long time we spent a lot of time talking to her about her quilts. And as we were walking out of her living room, she had an open Bible beside her chair. And I just put my hand on it and I said, You read this book? And she said, Oh yes. And then she began to tell me how she was looking forward to seeing Jesus. And she gave the most cogent, profound description of what it meant to her to face death, knowing that she would never really die that I've ever heard. A simple, uneducated woman with with profundity that you wouldn't find in, in most scholars, simply because she had a heart that was open to the Lord. And that's, that's why the Lord chose these three. It's why they were so often in the middle of things. These were the three that he took with him when he healed the synagogue official's daughter. These were the three that he took with him in Gethsemane and asked to pray with him. This was the inner circle. And two of these men wrote most of the scripture that Paul didn't write. They were on the inside. But they weren't favorites. They were God's. They were Jesus intimates because they had a heart to know. That's all it takes. That kind of openness. And so He invited these three to to climb this mountain. They struggle their way to the top. And I'm sure, as so often is the case, you get to the top and you sit down and rest and you take in the view and you chat for a while and. And uh, your heart rate begins to settle down. And then Luke tells us that our Lord invited them to pray with him. And as they began to pray, he was transformed. And the word that's translated "transfigured" here comes from a Greek word from which we get our word "metamorphize." It really means to change form, transform. Would be, a I think, a better, better translation. It has to do with with structural change, outward change, physical change. He began to appear in a different form. What form? The form that he had when he was with the Father before the Incarnation. See, our Lord for one moment stepped back into eternity. He stepped into heaven. And that was a moment of truth. They saw him as he really was. Up to this point, he was, as C.S. Lewis said, God incognito. He was hidden. But suddenly they saw Him as He really was. He was God, manifest in the flesh, and all the glory of God shone out through His humanity. Deity in humanity became seen for the first time. John describes his impression in his Gospel, in the introduction to the Gospel, the prologue. He says, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the communication. Of God to us. His Word to us. The living Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glories of the only begotten of God. Full of grace and truth. They saw Him as He really was. And then Peter has a comment on on this event. In his little uh, letter. His second letter. He says, he puts it this way, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said? Some of you will will not die until you, you see the kingdom of God come with power. Peter says we saw his coming and his power. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter never forgot this event because for this moment, this moment of truth, he saw Jesus as he really was. And then as they as they stood and watched this transformation they noticed two figures uh, that of Elijah and Moses, the two premier prophets in the Old Testament. Moses is was the greatest of all the prophets it was said of Moses that uh, he did not receive revelation like the other prophets did didn't receive. Uh, the word from God by visions and dreams, but God spoke to him face to face. He had a little tent to which he went, and there he met with God, and God revealed truth to Moses. And he wrote it down. He wrote the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He was the premier prophet, writing prophet of Israel. Elijah was the, uh, as they say, the premier non-literary prophet. He didn't write, but he was a spokesman of God to God's people. came at a critical time. uh Carried on a magnificent ministry to God's people. These were the two greatest of the prophets, the two to which Jesus had been compared by the crowds, who said, uh, Well, he could be Elijah, or he could be Isaiah, or he could be one of the prophets. And uh, these, the two great prophets stand with Jesus and they're conversing. Luke tells us that they talked about his exodus, his death. Some commentators say they were urging Jesus on, giving him courage. But we don't know what they were talking about. They were speaking together about uh, about Jesus' death. We don't know the content of it. We just know the topic. And uh, Peter was nonplussed. He didn't know what to do. It's someone who said there are two kinds of people. There are people who have something to say, and there are people who have to say something. And and uh, uh, You know, I've been in that place many times where I feel like I have to say something and I don't know what to say and I generally put my foot in my mouth. And uh, Peter said, this is is a marvelous uh, event. We have to commemorate this happening in some way. Let's build three lodges up here, three little houses. One for Elijah and one for Moses and one for Jesus. And uh, when we need to hear truth, we'll come up here and we'll listen to these three men. We'll hear from them. And he had hardly, the words hardly came out of his mouth before a cloud enveloped the top of Mount Hermon. Completely obscured their sight. And uh, a voice came out of the cloud. And it said, no, Peter, no, Peter. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the other two figures uh, faded from sight. And as Mark puts it, Mark, as you know, was Peter's scribe. He simply was writing Peter's memoirs. Uh, And Mark says, when they looked up, they saw no man save Jesus only. Only Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, that's the lesson for today. That's not very profound. Anyone can understand that. The thing that we ought to do is listen to Jesus. Well, we can listen to... Truth from other sources. But every truth has to be evaluated on the basis of what Jesus has said. He is our authority. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said that art is like morality. You have to draw a line somewhere. You have to draw lines. Where do you draw the lines? That's the big question today. What can we say about, uh, about teenage sex? What can we say about homosexuality? What can we say about other naughty moral problems that we have to face in, in our world? Where, where is there a tree that will give us the knowledge of good and evil? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Listen to Him. We don't need to be in doubt. He has spoken unequivocally about so many issues that we have to, we have to face. Well, while I was uh, on this trip, I picked up a book in Boston called The Book of Questions uh, by uh, Robert Stock. Uh, it was on the uh, uh, New York Times bestseller list for a number of months. And uh, it's simply a, a series of moral questions, moral conundrums is the way he put it. Uh, issues that we have to grapple with. And uh, questions like this. Suppose you were privy to secrets, trade secrets uh, that, uh, that established the, the uniqueness of a product of the company that you work for, and someone gave gave you $5 million to betray that secret, what would you do? And that's a a moral dilemma to many people. But Jesus sets it straight. He says, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and loses his own soul? You betray your own integrity. You give away uh, something of yourself. You you lose something of your soul. You, You wouldn't want to do that. If they gave you the whole world of money, You wouldn't want to do that. And what struck me in looking through this book is the three-fourths of the questions that are raised are not moral conundrums at all. They're solved solely on the basis of what Jesus has to say. Just listen to him. Listen to him. Some of you may have seen the uh, letter to the editor in the Statesman this last week. I didn't read a newspaper for four months. Um, Didn't miss a thing, really. Read Time and Newsweek, but... Didn't see a newspaper, didn't watch television, I came back totally ignorant. And, uh, opened up the paper the first day, and this is what I read. On various issues such as homosexuality, abortion, and so forth, people spew forth biblical verses as though the Bible is the ultimate source of morality and information. This mentality thrives on ignorance of the Bible itself. Timothy 2.3.16 tells them that all Scripture is inspired. But 1 Corinthians 7.6 and 7.12 and 2 Corinthians 11.17 tells us not all Scripture is inspired. Well, what this dear person betrays is a terrible ignorance of Scripture, because that's not what those passages say. Those are passages where Paul on one occasion says... uh, this is what I say, not the Lord. In other words, the Lord didn't make any statement about this issue, but I'm making an authoritative statement. The person simply didn't, doesn't understand. But he goes on to say, the contradiction is one of many listed in an easy reading text written in 1859 by one William Henry Burritt, drove the fundamentalist bananas. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. The, the contradictions are, are easily explained. There's none of them that are beyond explanation. The book is entitled Self-Contradictions of the Bible and is available from Prometheus Books so forth. It should be in the library of all those seeking truth and those wishing to rebut the Bible spewers. Well, speaking as one Bible spewer, <laughs> um, that's where the truth is found. Where else can it be found? It's not going to be found in Ladies Home Journal or Reader's Digest or National Geographic or, or Hustler or, or any, you know, any magazine. I find most books are are a mixture of of truth and error, good and evil. Some of the most seemingly innocuous magazines, like Reader's Digest, often contain outright lies. Our neighbors, some with the best of intention, very often tell us some terrible lies because they don't know any better. How can you sort all this out? Listen to him. Listen to him. That's our authority. For life, we don't need to be in the dark about moral issues. He doesn't speak about everything, but about those issues which he does speak, we don't need to be in the dark. We can be very clear about what is good and what is evil. I, as a sort of an exercise for myself, I originally hadn't intended even to uh, share any of this, but uh, I'll tell you what I did. I, I went through parts of Mark. Just listening to Jesus and seeing what conclusions I would, would come to. And, uh, for example, in, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, Jesus talks about marriage. Uh, Pharisees came to Jesus and said, is it, on what basis can we divorce our wives? And Jesus said, let's don't talk about divorce. Let's talk about reconciliation. And the point that he makes is no marriage is irretrievably lost. Any marriage can be saved. The the problem is not in irreconcilable differences. The problem is not that you married the wrong person. The problem is hardness of heart. And if, if hearts are softened, any marriage can be saved. I don't care how far gone it seems, it can be saved. Now, you won't hear that in our world today. If things are tough, you bail out. Well, Jesus promises that anything is possible with God. He doesn't say everything is easy, but he says everything is possible. And uh, that's good news. We need to listen to Jesus when he says, you can save your marriage. You haven't trashed 20 years of your life with the wrong person. There's a way to turn it around and uh, then in verses 13 through 16 he takes these tacky little street children puts them in his lap and he says it's this is the sort of stuff of which the kingdom of God is made there's a childhood into which you grown men must grow there's one we're leaving a childishness that we're leaving but there's a childhood in, into which we must grow and it's these little ones who believe in me who are who are way ahead of of you folks that are that are hanging up on on your own minds, you need to become like little children and, and submit to, to the truth, and then you'll grow. And uh, then, in verses seventeen through uh, twenty or through thirty-one, there's this uh, story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and and Jesus tells him that the business of life is not to amass money, not to make a name for yourself. And uh, not to gain power in this world, but the business of life is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your all your mind. So that, that's what will deliver you from the futility and and the emptiness of your life. And you're not going to hear that from your, your society, this culture, your friends. In effect, Jesus says it's those who hunger and thirst after righteousness who will be satisfied. And... Uh, and then he, he goes on to talk about his death in verses 32 through 34 and gives us an, an indirect promise of of life for ourselves, that because he lives, we will live, that we can face death with, with courage. We don't need to be tyranny, uh, tyrannized and dominated by death. And then he uh, tells the disciples in verses 37 through 45 that, Greatness comes from serving, that greatness is not how many people you have under you, but it's how many people you're under, how many people you're serving and giving and, and caring for, that, that your your sense of worth and your sense of value and accomplishment comes from helping others and not from going about looking for those who can, can minister to, uh, to you. And then uh, he talks about this whole business of shame and how our shame can be covered up. Um, I I have, for some reason, felt an enormous pity for uh, Paul Pee-wee Herman this last month. As some of you know, uh, Pee-wee is charged with lewd and lascivious conduct in a pornographic theater, and and the man is ruined. His reputation is ruined. Uh, But worse, is just the shame. Stand-up comics are ridiculing him and... And uh, his his sin and shame shouted from the housetops. And somehow my heart has gone out to him. It was a shameful thing if if he indeed indeed do what, did what he is, if he indeed did what he was charged with. But uh, I couldn't help but think of the shameful things that go on in the privacy of my mind. And you can think of of things that go on in the secrecy of your house or in your own mind and in your heart. It's no no better. We're no better. We all do shameful things. But we can be reborn. Our sin can be forgiven and forgotten. Uh, he can deal with the, with the badness, the evil within us and turn our lives around. Comebacks are always possible. It's sometimes our humiliation is the means by which he, he makes us into something great. It's when we're broken, soft in his hands, malleable that he can do something with us. And he uh, wouldn't know that. Apart from Jesus, and Jesus goes on through Mark, drawing these drawing lines, hard and fast lines. Uh, he tells us that greed is not good, that gossip is not good, that gay is not good. All of the things that uh, that people are talking about and concerned about and thinking about and puzzling over are issues that that he himself has settled. And so, again, the lesson for today. Just listen to him. Just listen to him. Be a, a long-term, lifelong apprentice to Jesus, like Mary. Just sit at his feet and listen. And uh, your obedience will enlighten the word. The more you know, the more you'll know. I uh, thought in that regard as, as I was uh, thinking through this message that, of Jesus' words that very closely parallel the Father's words from heaven. The Father said, listen to Jesus. Jesus said basically the same thing to the apostles when he said, uh, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, actually is the word, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. And uh, I thought of The problems that some of us have with uh, the whole teaching-learning process, sometimes we don't learn well because we're innately incapable of learning. I always struggle with mathematics all the way through high school and college. I took the the minimal amount of math, even though I was uh, in a bachelor of science degree. I tried to dodge every math course I could. Because I just could not get that stuff. I felt like a little girl that came home from school and her, her mother asked her, did they teach you anything today? And she said, no, they teached me and they teached me and they teach me, but they didn't learn me nothing. I, I still to this day count on my fingers. I, math is just beyond me. And for some of you, music may be beyond you. They could, you could submit yourself to a, a music teacher for years and you'd never get it. It's like the old adage, never try to teach a pig to sing. Uh, it doesn't do any good, and it annoys the pig. Uh, <laughs> doesn't do any good. You, you, you could try to get it, and try to get it, and try to get it, and you can't get it. But Jesus says he can open the eyes of the blind. He can open the ears of the deaf. He can make the dumb speak. So our impotency and our... Our incompetency does not in any way frustrate the teaching-learning process. The other problem in the process is that sometimes uh, teachers, though they're competent, may be impatient and and austere and and distant, and they discourage and intimidate and frighten the wits out of those that are weak and timid, and they never gain the affection of those that are perverse, and uh, the whole process breaks down. But here's one who is gentle. He's always gentle. And he's humble. Have you ever thought of the humility of God? That's not an attribute we studied in theology class. But uh, the scriptures are very clear in that regard. I read a psalm while we were on our trip, Psalm 113. The first section talks about God's transcendence and his glory and his might. It's in heaven above all. And then there's this remarkable phrase. It doesn't come through in English, but but it says he humbles himself to look to the meek and the weak and the lonely and the lost and the woman who can't have children. The humility of God is is a concept that is hard for us to grasp, but that's what the incarnation is all about. And when you see our Lord in his patience, his wonderful patience with the disciples, then you understand what, what he's talking about when he says, I'm gentle and I'm humble. And teach anyone. It's a lifelong process. You never quit learning. You never get too old to grow. You never outgrow the grace of God. I was reading this uh, summer through part of Genesis. And I came across a wonderful section. I'm sure I've read it many times, but it just clicked. It says Abraham was 99 years of age. 99 years of age. And God said to Abraham, I'm El Shaddai. Now, uh, scholars argue over what, what El Shaddai means, what that name means. But for myself, I think it's taken from the Hebrew word for breast, shod. And I, and I think he's saying that he's the, he's the one who nurtures. He's the one who provides sustenance, substance to our life. He cares like a mother cares for her young ones. He loves us like that. He holds us to his breast. He's El Shaddai. Abraham, 99 years old. I'm Al Shaddai, he says. Walk before me and become mature. And I thought, hole on the road. This man's 99 years old and he isn't mature yet. And I'm 58. Well, you just have to keep on growing, that's all. There's no end to what God has to teach us. If we have that simple... Openness, sweetness of spirit that enables the Lord to begin to teach us and change us and make us into what he wants us uh, to be. Uh, I thought of a poem, George MacDonald's poem, I'm a dead seed, dark and slow, father of larks and children, make me grow. That's my prayer. There are times I feel dead and dormant, And I am not a quick steady. I am slow. But uh, this one who knows when the sparrows fall, who cares for little children, father of larks and children, make me grow. That, uh, That must be our prayer. Well, let's pray. None other lamb, none other name, none other hope in heaven or earth or sea, None other hiding place from guilt or shame. None beside Thee. Father, we've tried. But uh, we keep coming back to where we began. To our Lord Jesus. We realize that our efforts to make something of ourselves are, are certainly doomed to failure apart from Him. And uh, we very often sense that dullness, the darkness, dormancy in our, in our own hearts, that lack of growth. But we would pray that uh, you would give us an insatiable desire for your word, that like, like, like babes, we would desire the sincere milk of the word, word. That we would sit at your feet and listen to you Help us to distinguish between the the error around us and the truth that you've so clearly revealed. And then help us to walk in it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.